This is Without Compromise, a show that explores what happens when you won't settle for anything less than your crazy ideas. We'll talk to athletes, founders, adventurers, and entrepreneurs of all kinds about living without compromise. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Welcome to the show. We're programmed for survival, so our instinct is to give up on these situations, to move away from them. I thought if I didn't sign up for that race, that I was just going to disappear. It doesn't have to be these big, huge things that everyone thinks you need to do to make a difference. What I love about Chris's story is uh, is just how um, unique it is, how many turns it takes, how, how unconventional it is. I think why I like that is because, um, you know, here at Athletic, we make non-alcoholic beer all day. So uh, when you do that all day, you kind of are also attracted to other ideas that are going against the grain or other things that are really out of the box. And Chris is actually known for awful cooking, cooking with the parts of the animal that aren't often used, especially in American cuisine. So, you know, what's cool about that is it it cuts down on waste. It's just a lot more sustainable and it's very creative. And you're introducing something that usually people have a negative connotation for, a negative experience with, into something really positive, something uh, where they can see all these benefits. And here at Athletic Brewing, we we know all about that. Uh, really, nobody has had a great experience with non-alcoholic beer uh, until now. So we love the change we're making in that world. So I think that's one reason Chris's story is so cool and fits so well with Athletic. And uh, in fact, if you don't know, we have done a collaboration beer with Chef Cosentino and it's called After Shift, and it's all about kind of when people start to relax after the shift or working in a a crazy restaurant. You know, you have that beer at the end of the night that's super relaxing, uh, that helps you unwind, and you can do that without compromise because it's, of course, non-alcoholic beer. And so if you'd like to learn more about that beer, go to our website, Uh, and also if you'd like to learn more about Chris, uh, there's a link in the show notes as well. But I think you're going to enjoy this episode. I hope you'll learn something. And I hope that it inspires you to maybe try something new yourself. You know, I'm, I'm a glorified dishwasher. Let's just be honest, right? Like, that's all it is. Like, chef translates to teacher, right? Because you have to train your staff. But, you know, we're glorified dishwashers. We still wash dishes. We still scrub pans. We still clean vegetables. We still, you know. There's a lot of things that are not glamorous about, you know, being in the industry. You know, I I hear that a lot with with, uh, anyone that's reaching a certain level of, of, you know, I don't know, skill or or a certain level of leadership. There's always those things throughout the day or throughout the week that really bring you back down. I had a friend that said he got closed this big round of funding, was talking to this celebrity that helped him close it. Five minutes after getting back in the office, his hands are covered in ink trying to fix the printer and it's like these highs and lows all throughout the day all throughout the week all throughout the year and, and i'm sure you see that like you just said you go from serving probably the most incredible people just you know huge names and then you're washing some dishes in the back or fixing a light bulb or something well i mean you can't in my opinion you can't ask somebody else to do the work if you're not willing to do it yourself that's my that's my belief so if I'm going to ask somebody to do dishes, then I better be willing to do dishes. Right. So like, that's just my belief. So I think lead by example. And like, when you're doing things like that, you know, I think more people are prone to, to be excited to work with you. Whereas 
if you're just telling people to do stuff that doesn't that doesn't build you know trust or relationship or anything other than just oh wow he's telling me to do stuff all the time whereas oh the the dish guy's backed up and chef's in there maybe we should kind of help out how do you prevent yourself from being overwhelmed with those sorts of tasks and still you know have the capacity to make some of those higher end decisions that you're you know in a role to do <laughs> you know what i'm saying you, you never there's never enough time <laughs> there's never enough time and you just figure it out you know um there's no perfect answer there's no there's no silver bullet to make everything work it's just things you just have to keep trudging forward and i think that's for me like the way i've always lived i think you know growing up i was you know um an avid skateboarder um i was a skier and you know i i didn't excel well in school so you know i started you know i ran cross country and distance and track and i mean my thing was just for some reason or another i could suffer you know i was comfortable with falling down and getting up and doing it again with skateboarding which you know it taught me tenacity and it taught me the you know the no give up attitude and i just took that into whatever it is that i do whether it's you know um cycling or skiing or work or figuring out how you know how a dish is going to come together you know like i forcefully taught myself how to butcher like classically that's something is trained by like a professional but I didn't have that option and I lied at a stage which is like where you go and work somewhere for free to learn and told them yeah I know how to do it and I just you know bs my way through the process and made it happen which is crazy and if you think about it you know and then I went and bought a book uh from the UC Davis which is they have a whole veterinarian program for farm animals so I bought one of their books on how to save animals to learn how to butcher them. I backwards myself. And, you know, there's restaurant butchery and then there's butcher shop butchery, right? There's all different styles. And you know, it doesn't matter what it is. It's just, you know, you you figure out what your your strengths are and your weaknesses are. And then you use your strengths to get through your weaknesses. And I think for me, my strength was I could push myself to get through something, whether it be, you know, uh, a long climb, falling down on a trick, you know, being told, you know, the number one thing is like being told you can't do it. And then you're going to force yourself to do it. I mean, that's like every kid on the planet, right? You tell them not to go out past 11 o'clock, they come home at 1145. So, but those were the things that I took what I, what I knew were my strengths, which was, the physical attributes of me pushing through things. And then I put pit them against my weaknesses, which were the fact that, you know, I have learning disabilities and, you know, ADD and I can't, you know, dyslexia, which, you know, numbers and letters. I didn't even pass algebra for crying out loud um, because the letters and the numbers all looked jumbled. So I kind of figured out what worked for me you know, and what everybody told me was what was going to keep me back was ADD ended up becoming my superpower. So I turned what is normally known as, you know, the, the inability to focus on the ability to focus on many things at once. So I could prep 
nine things at once instead of two. So I turned my watch. Every time the uh, the hand hit a different letter, I could it would remind me to focus on the next thing. So I turned it into an ability to do more. And, and you know, everybody figures out their way. So, so when for you, you know, on a skateboard, that's a great example because trick after trick, it takes so much repetition to get something right. And then also cross country, that's something you can just kind of lock in and do. When did it translate to the kitchen for you? Uh, I start, ironically, I uh, my first kitchen job was working at International House of Pancakes on East Main Road in Middletown, Rhode Island, where I was a dishwasher. And I lied and said I was 15, where I was 14. And I showed up thinking that I, I had no idea, like a shift was eight hours. Like I showed up with my skateboard, like ready to go like do a four hour shift and then head into downtown Newport to go skateboard with my friends. Lo and behold, eight hours later, I'm still there. Right. <laughs> um, and I was enamored by watching these two guys cook breakfast, you know, and it was so synchronized and so fluid. And that was the start of it all. Like just watching these two dudes. And the reason I went to work there is because I wanted to go ski in Europe. And the only way I could go on this trip to Europe was if I raised all the money. Like there was no parental help. There was nothing like I didn't have that, you know, opportunity. I just had to like, okay, I want to ski in Europe. I want to go there. I got to raise the money. So how am I going to do it? So I was a paper boy and a dishwasher. When was the last time you heard of somebody being a paper boy? That's pretty archaic. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, that, that, that'll, that'll date you a little bit, but uh, <laughs> no, there's, there's gotta be some still out there. So man, IHOP, IHOP is where it all began for you. And I, I, I'm sure those chefs don't even know the impact they had on you. Maybe, maybe you told them later. I don't know. Maybe you can't find them, but I, I, well, the IHOP was owned by a friend, a skateboard friend's father. And he had a ramp, a half pipe in his backyard. And like the restaurant, I haven't seen anybody since then, you know, like, and then I went, you know, but it was just an eye-opening experience just seeing the fluidity. I mean, breakfast is the most difficult thing to cook because you have eggs and toast and, and how many different multiplications of options do you, right? Over easy, sunny side up, over hard, over medium, poached. Uh, you have sheared eggs, then you have scrambled eggs, you have scrambled hard, scrambled light, you know. How many different variations of toast? How many different variations of proteins? So when you start putting all that stuff together, like it's pretty overwhelming. But to have the flow go so well with watching two people, it was just, it was awesome, you know? Um, and those guys found out that I was interested and they turned me into their little prep guy so they could go smoke cigarettes and I would do their work <laughs> like a smart chef, you know? Right, right. So, so that's a big jump to go from working at IHOP to what you what you're kind of known for now. What what were some of the steps or some of the big milestones that that led to taking that you know the kitchen more seriously and cooking more seriously and to where it became a, a real passion for you? Um, well, I mean, I, I was very fortunate that I grew up with my grandmother Helen Easton would always cook really beautiful holiday meals and and it was very English inspired. And then my great grandmother Rosalie would cook very Italian, you know, very traditional Italian meals, right? So I had these two distinctly unique worlds going on at once. And those things kind of just furthered my interest. You know, as a little boy, she would make tomato pie and I would hand crank pasta with Rosalie. And then 
with Grandma Helen, you know, I would go clamming and we would make stuffed quahogs or we would make, you know, chowder. So it was just like all these things were happening, right? At the same time. And it was probably my junior year that I kind of just figured out that cooking school was it. You know, like I definitely realized that my grades were not going to get me into a school of higher learning. So um, I applied to Johnson and Wales and did a four year stint there. First two years were the culinary program. Second two years were the food service management program. I became a teaching assistant there. Um, so while I was taking classes of food service management, I was actually running and working in their restaurants, uh, training my peers who were going through the internship program. Um, and from there, I, you know, it just kind of moved forward pretty fast. You know, I moved to Washington, D.C. and worked for Mark Miller at the Red Sage and then on to Kincaid's uh, American Brasserie, which was also in D.C., and then I packed up and moved to San Francisco with my now wife, Tatiana. Wow, man. So, so much happening in those steps too. You know, I know you, you, you've hashed out your story so many times. So I do appreciate you going over it again. No. What, what else were you doing during that time? It was cooking. Were you, were you staying active in any way? Uh, I know you loved to, to ride. I know you loved to ski for a long time. Um, what, what were you doing besides cooking? Well, when it was in my senior year of culinary school, I had a pretty serious uh, accident where I blew out my knee. I slipped in the kitchen and destroyed my knee. And this was kind of the start of cycling for me because, you know, I had a, a pretty heavy duty knee surgery. And the doctor was like, you know, the literally the day after I graduated, my senior year, the night everybody's out having a good time. I had to be home at 10 o'clock because I had to be checked in for OR at five. And I had massive reconstructive knee surgery the day after graduation. Like, okay, everybody just walked the aisle and now you're going to go get your knee opened up next morning. So that's the, it wasn't the beginning of cycling, but it was what really, I would say, just cemented it into my life. You know, the doctor's like, if you ever want to ski again, if you ever want to do these things that you enjoy, you need to get on a bike and rebuild the muscle structure around your leg. And then, you know, did, did, did it eventually just become, oh, I, I just like the bike enough to keep doing that? Well, there was, I had started mountain biking prior to this. And I loved that feeling of single track because it had this flow movement, like you were skiing, like you were downhill skiing in the trees, you know, but getting on a bike after having knee surgery is not easy. I mean, it hurt and uh, it took a lot of tenacity and a lot of work. And, you know, I wasn't skiing for a while. Skiing kind of got sidelined for a long time. Um, skateboarding, I was told no more because of the side to side movement. I can skateboard now, but back then it was the injury was too new. So um, after a full summer of working on a commercial fishing boat and riding a bike every single day, two times a day, uh, I packed up and moved to D.C., I bought a fixed gear and that was my method of commuting around DC. <laughs> there, there you go. So you really delved so into biking. It was like, oh yeah, like it was, it was pretty crazy. You know, moved to DC, knew only two people and just started a new life, you know, and, and worked like crazy 
volunteered for every event that I could. Everything that Chef asked, I would do. Um, anytime there was a special event, I raised my hand. I, you know, I just did everything I had to, to, to get where I want to be. And I just kept riding. And that's where I discovered 24 hour bike racing was during my years in DC. There was an event called 24 hours of Canaan, um, which was in West Virginia and Canaan, West, Canaan, West Virginia. And I went with a four person team and it was the first time I'd ever really seen anything like that. You know, I'd been mountain biking and at that point I was riding every day and I got to see this incredible, it was an incredible moment in cycling because it's when the endurance thing changed. It went from a 24 hour bike race with four people to there's this guy named John Stamstead who showed up and raced it by himself. And as a, I was just dumbfounded by the idea, you know, I was like, holy shit, this guy is, this guy's going to ride the whole 24 hours by himself. And they didn't even want him to do it. He had to sign up under his name, plus three aliases to race. Oh, man. He had to pay the fee for a four person team to race by himself. He paid to so suffer. So he raced his, paid to suffer. We all paid to suffer. I mean, it was John Stamstead, <laughs> Robert Stamstead, J.R. Stamstead. Or RJ Stamstead. So how he how he raced. And that was it. Like that was the the light switch was turned on. And and for me, that was like, okay. I and it's ironic because at that same time I saw that guy race the 24 hour solo is also when I met Tim Parr and Mike Ferentino, who were racing the 24 hours on single speeds. So it was kind of like this comative moment for me where I saw, oh my God. Cause I, I, I kept being dyslexic. I shifted like crap. I never got the shifting right, you know, cause I'm always backwards. So, and my bike would always break cause I would shift incorrectly and like break the derailleur or break my chain or just do something stupid. And so there's these guys racing on single speeds. And then there's this one guy riding solo somehow or another. I thought it was a great idea to do all of it at once. And that's where I went. It's that superpower <laughs> ADHD superpower. I think riding solo 24 hours on a single speed it was exciting to me because i had nothing to blame but myself if the bike broke that meant that you know i wasn't smart enough to be prepared right because i only had one gear there was nothing to shift i literally had to have a good chain make a good decision on my gear ratio and my fork had to not be messed up so i all i had to do was make sure i could keep air in the tires and and point the wheel you know so the only thing that could break was me. And I, there was something that about that, that I felt comfortable with, you know, soulless and suffering. I mean, it was just, I can do this. I can suffer more than everybody else can. What, what's it like being an hour, you know, 18, 19, 20 in the middle of that, in the middle of the night after going for so long, how, how can you describe it for somebody that's never done it? Well, you just brought up what's called the witching hour which is when it's it's an hour before sun's supposed to, you know sunrise is coming and that's usually when it's coldest and it's usually when you start seeing shit so i've seen spaceships i've seen aliens um and that was all in one race actually <laughs> they they were together yeah they were together. they were together they came they landed they came out they pointed at me and then they got back in their ship and flew away um that was in one race but no it's it's 
it's the that is the hardest moment, like right there, the witching hour. And we always talk, you can make it through the witching hour, you can make it through anything. Because it's 12 noon to 12 noon. And which is kind of crazy because you start at like the peak of heat, right? <laughs> it's like mid midday, like the sun's blaring down on you. So you start in like automatically in heat stroke, and then it gets cold at night, and then you're freezing your butt off. And then it, it's just crazy. But it was awesome. Like I miss those days. I did 24 solo 24 hour races in my career. Was that intentional? 24 of those? No, I was going to do more, but I had an injury and I had to retire. And I also became a father. So I thought it would probably be best in my best interest to focus on my career uh, that paid money instead of an, an, uh, an event that wasn't paying money. It just fulfilled my excitement level. Right, right, and, and and terribly hard on your body. I'm sure <laughs> you know. I'm sure oh, coming yeah. home after oh, yeah. a 24 hour hour event, you you weren't much use as a father uh, to your wife. <laughs> no, I was pretty useless. I mean, the scary part is, is when I would have to like drive home from a 24 hour race event. Oh man, your pit crew's up for 24 hours. You're up for 24 hours. Somebody's got to like drive back. So it was always an interesting thing. So t- t- tell us about you know. From there, you you made it out to to San Francisco. What what was the the reason for that move, and and how was your career growing at that point? What had you, what were your aspirations? I guess. I mean, at that point, I was just a pretty pretty green line cook um, who thought he knew everything, which is just like every green line cook. I came to San Francisco, and we chose it because well, one Tatiana had been to San Francisco. I'd never been. Um, I came blindly. But the one thing that was consistent was that all the produce boxes that were coming into the restaurants back then said California. You know, the there was very limited um, amounts of produce and items that were being focused on from the lo- local communities. So at that point, I was in D.C. and there was no, you know, we weren't seeing a lot of the Pennsylvania Dutch farms and um, we weren't seeing a lot of the farms from Virginia deliver into the city. Most of the boxes said California and all the wine was saying California at that point, too. So because that was the big California wine boom, you know, we're talking like 94 through 96. Everybody's talking about it. And all the magazines talked about restaurants in San Francisco. And at that point, it was just, do I move to Manhattan? Or because that was the other big option, because that's where all the other great restaurants were at the time. Or do I move to San Francisco where I can ride my bike and, you know, I'm close enough to ski mountains and there's things that, you know, can be done. And, and we made that decision to come here. And it was just from the moment we got here, it was just eye opening. Like I was fortunate enough to, our apartment was right next door to a place called Green Apple Books, which was like the epicenter for used cookbooks. So that became my everyday jaunt before I would go to work. And there was all these Asian markets and new vegetables and new ingredients I'd never seen before and new smells. And it was just, I can't even, there's so many things that happened when we moved here. It was just eye-opening experience, you know? Had you already begun your your fascination in, in style of cooking with Ophel? No. Okay. Nope. Did you, no idea. Would, 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 did San Francisco eventually bring that kind of awareness to you and that style of cooking? No, I mean, it was ultimately like I was immersed in everything that was around me. So, you know, where we moved to, there was an area that was like a, 
a newer version of Chinatown or a second Chinatown, which had great Asian markets and uh, all these really cool places to see kitchen utensils and cookbooks and foods. And, you know, there was a char siu shop down the street. And but then I was cooking at Rubicon, cooking really beautiful French food. But, you know, when you're when you're immersed in food and, you know, the farmer's markets here were, I, I, there was greens I'd never seen before and mushrooms that, I, you know, I never, I had no idea they existed. So it didn't matter what I thought I knew. I realized I knew nothing and I became a giant sponge. So everything was fair game. Everything was fair game. Like I just sucked up as much information as I could, you know? I was fortunate enough to start working for, uh, you know, Tracy Desjardins at Rubicon. And I was there for two and a half years, which then I ended up picking up and moving back east to open a restaurant in Martha's Vineyard for the same company. And I lived on the vineyard for a year. And then I moved back after that year. Um, and in between there, I went to France for a month. Uh, my wife and I decided we were going to go travel around France. So we were in Paris and Lyon and Boone and all these just incredible experiences. And it just became like, how much knowledge could I amass in my head? Did you know what you wanted to do with it? Or was it just gather, gather, gather? At some point, this is going to be useful. Well, you, the thing about cooking is the moment you say you know everything is the moment you need to get out of the business because you don't know shit. There's so much to learn from every culture one culture's way of cutting a fish may be completely polar opposite of another. And there's a reason why. So understanding each reason of why things work a certain way are extremely important. So I just didn't believe in that idea of shutting off any information. Right. So like if I learn to cook, cut fish like they did in Japan, is that different than the way it would be cut in France? And is it different than the way it would be cut in Italy or Spain or China? Right? So when you start looking at all these cultural differences with technique, the, the, the possibilities are endless. The cuisines are endless. And, you know, whether it's a spice variation, whether it's, you know, a braising technique may be different by one compared to another. There's just so much to learn. So it was just compiling knowledge and understanding. And I think the most important part for me was understanding the histories of why, you know, like why did, why in San Francisco are these dishes so famous and where are they originating from? And to me, that's really important. So to understand the history behind things really goes a long way. And it gives you the, I like to, to compare it to somebody who says, you know, I ran around the block with my dog four times, so I'm going to do the Boston Marathon. Well, that's not going to go really well for you, right? But if you train for it and you build upon that going around the block four times with the dog and you build on that every single day, then you have the legs to stand on to do the marathon. Then you continue to build on top of that. Then you have the ability to do well in the marathon, not just finish it. And to me, my thought process was build the legs to stand on so you have the long-term capability to succeed in this industry. That was my goal. What was success to you at that time? Yeah, I think that's the that, that's the twisted problem, right? Like that's the twisted question because 
there is the idea of what success is by the public. There's idea of what success is by what you're told success is. And then there's your own personal successes. You know, back then I thought it was going to be like, man, I want to be in, I want to win awards and I want to be in magazines and I want to fly all over the world and learn all these cool things. That was my idea of success, which was, which was skewed because it was a young man's idea of success, right? Like I didn't, I had these outlandish ideas when I, when I first met my wife of like, okay, by this age, I was going to be a sous chef and this age, I was going to be this and this age, I was going to run my own restaurant. And I had a reward system for myself, you know, which, which included a titanium bike from this guy in Crested Butte, Colorado. When I got my first restaurant, it was ridiculous. And I'm glad it didn't go that way because I would have been lost and I would have failed. And I think that's the, that's the thing that for me was hard to understand in the moment, but now I see it as clear as day. Success looks different to you now, as well as, you know, maybe, maybe what, maybe what makes a good life. I think, you know, <clears throat> the ultimate thing, you know, the measure of someone's success really is how you learn to deal with problems. Mm-hmm. That's the ultimate measure of success right? The dishwasher doesn't show up. Something breaks. Purveyor doesn't show. Whatever. It's life. You know, nothing is ever going to be. Everybody wants to systemize and make everything be this. Like this well-oiled machine. But life isn't a well-oiled machine. The restaurant industry will never be a well-oiled machine. It's unless you are commissaried, systematic, if you want creativity, if you want seasonally changing. It's too hard to do that when you have somebody who has so much in their head and wants to share it, you know? So how how much of your day is taking care of those, putting out those small fires, would you say, or how much, if you could put a percentage on it? Cause I I think that's pretty interesting. You look at someone like you in your position and think, you know, they're, they're not dealing with any of that. I'm only dealing with that, but that's obviously not true. I deal with it all day, all the time. I mean, Unfortunately, Mason, you know, we just closed Coxcomb forever. So I've spent the last month closing down a business. Yeah. Nothing probably quite prepares you for that. No, because, you know, you put so much into it, so much time and energy and and, and goals and dreams. But I think, you know, there's so much to running a restaurant. It's more than just putting the food on the plate. It's about cost of goods and, you know, table turns and guest expectations. And there's so many parts of it that, you know, I think people don't realize, you know, it's a very slim margin business, like very slim margin. I don't think people realize how slim the margins are. So um, that's why they say, you know, the rate of restaurants that fail is extremely high because if you're not doing it right, you're really not doing it right. So well, from everything you've learned, what, what, what would you say, what, what, what's the method or the way you prepare your how you process moments like this having to do something so difficult that's necessary that's that's painful same thing i do everything else i put my head down and just burl through it it's what i know you know no one's gonna i'm 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 definitely not gonna ever be this i don't know uh, maybe it's me judging myself but i don't foresee myself as a ted talk kind of guy about you know how to deal with everyday life problems. I am, you know, like I just put my head down and burl through it. And yes, there's moments of freak out. There's moments of anxiety. You know, there's lots of, of moments of depression, but it's still getting up, 
and pushing through to get it done because that's what you have to do. And I'm far from perfect. I make mistakes. Um, recognizing that I think is the most important thing. And like I said before, the measure of your success is, is really how you learn to deal with problems and, and how you correct them along the way. I think so many people are always focused on the win. Mm. Or never failing. I see that a lot. You know? Yeah, that, that's really a hard, that's almost impossible, <clears throat> right? But also, like, nobody really wants to focus on the shit that's fucked up. Let's be honest. Like, hey, you know what? I got to plunge the toilet today. Or the garbage man didn't come and the garbage is all over the street and now I have to sweep. Nobody's posting those pictures. Nobody's posting the crap that they go through every day. They're just taking that five-second one thing and turning it into a big positive where so everybody else thinks their life is shiny and glory where, you know, they have moments too. And I think admitting one's faults and admitting that things are rough, I think is more human and more important now than ever. I think it is too. I absolutely think it is too. And I, you know, and I know a lot of folks, it's not intentional, this, this overwhelming positivity, but it just has that effect when it's everyone, you know, posting everything that's that their highlights essentially. And you just sit there and, and, and contrast it against your, your cut scenes all day long. Um, to turn it a little more uh, positive and just, just talk about um, what's coming out, how did, you, how did you get introduced to Athletic Brewing and what drew you to Athletic Brewing? Okay, so it, it's a very interesting story. You know, um, I stopped drinking about two and a half years ago. And I stopped drinking because um, I have mental health issues. Um, I take medication and I started realizing that when I drank, I would spiral. And basically there's a reason why on the bottle, when you get pills from the doctor, it says, do not mix with alcohol. <laughs> right. Okay. So for all you folks out there who are listening to this, that is really true. If you mix your mental health pills with some alcohol, it's really going to mess you up. I know. So I just made a conscious decision. You know, it got to a point where the mental health issues came from a, an issue that I have with my stomach. My stomach does not produce the chemicals my brain needs to function. So it still functions, but just not the way it should all the time. And, you know, taking alcohol out of the equation, I instantly realized that um, I was a better person. I didn't have the mood swings. I didn't have the anxiety as much. Um, it's still there. And the depression definitely deteriorated to a point where it was barely, barely around. But then I also noticed I got skinny. I lost weight. I wasn't bloated. It was pretty cool. And I felt great. But the thing was, was I, you know, and I think this is something that's really important to understand. There, there are flavor complexities to spirits and beer that are really unique and distinct. There's not much that can be like that without having that type of beverage. And I know people have been working on it for a long time. And you know, every time I had a non-alcoholic beer, it was just, it was gross. It, to be really frank, it was horrible product. And, um, you know, living in Northern California, you know, we have incredible beer. Like my favorite place to go was Tornado. It was this beer bar and they had tons of great local beer. Like, I mean, let's be honest, Northern California has some pretty killer beer here, right? And there is an athletic brewing athlete by the name of Peter Stetna who I am friends with. And he and I cross paths all the time. He lives in Santa Rosa, Petaluma area. And, and we always chat. And one day he 
you know, I know he's a huge IPA fan and he posted athletic brewing and I reached out and I said, Peter, tell me like, no bullshit. Is it good? Because I, I, I miss the flavor of great beer, you know? And he's like, I swear, dude, it's great. So I just ordered some, you know, I ordered direct and, um, it, it really was a huge surprise for me. Um, uh, because when you've had such bad non-alcoholic beer for so long, your bar is automatically set low. Let's be honest. Right. When I talked to Peter, it set the bar really high because Peter has, has his own beer out an, an alcohol, a beer with alcohol, right? He has an IPA that is under his name. It's got his, I think it's even got his fancy mustache on it. Um, so I took his, his opinion really seriously and it, it was kind of a, a revelation at the same time. It's just, Oh my God, I can have it. I can have that flavor again. Cause I love bitter. Look, I eat chicories green. You know, a lot of, not a lot of people like chicories, right? They're bitter, but, but people love beer and hops are bitter and chicories are bitter. And, you know, for me, that, that hop, like that cascade and that sticky terpene esque flavor profile was really what I was missing. And it just, it hit the spot and it's been kind of a game changer ever since. So great to hear, you know, we hear new reasons why people drink us every day. And so, um, it, it never ceases to amaze me what leads someone to the brand, why they're attracted to it, why, you know, it, it hits that spot. So, so for you, how cool is it to see a collaboration beer, uh, coming out with, with that brewery that you saw on Pete's Instagram. And by the way, Pete's a great guy. Love having having him on our team, and uh, yeah, he's just been totally fantastic. So yeah, so so tell us about that, and tell us a little bit about Aftershift. I mean, having the opportunity to have a collaborative non-alcoholic beer. I mean, I mean, this is let, let, let's rephrase this. It's a craft non-alcoholic beer. Big yes, difference, definitely. Okay, so there's a non-alcoholic beer, and then there's a craft non-alcoholic beer, and that's that's what I think for me is the biggest like it's treated like I would treat products in the restaurant, right? They're focused on, you know, quality, consistency, flavor profiles without having the side effects. Right. And, and that to me was just a real eye opener. Flavor was like, is present and forward. Whereas, you know, non-alcoholic beers are not flavor forward. They're flavor backward, flavor gross. Flavors are what, my job is. And, you know, I give taste memories for a living. And I think, you know, athletic brewing gave me back the taste memories that I craved in a really great way to be able to work together with, with athletic to create a flavor profile that is different. That's food friendly. That is craveable and crushable is is beyond exciting. You know, it's like, there's been a whole slew of people who have had it. You know, I know Peter got Stetna got some of the prototypes and, you know, we're trying to sneak them out to people here and there. A couple of my chef buddies in New York got some prototypes before I even got them, <laughs> which was kind of funny. I'm like, Hey, you get that. Like, <laughs> but it's, you know, there's something to be said in the restaurant industry. There's always the after ship drink. Right. And for years, the restaurant, it was like, okay, busy night's over. Here's your shift beer or your shift beverage. I, I took that away at the restaurant. 
because I felt it was causing more problems than good. If you guys want to have an after shift drink, you can go down to the pub down the street. It creates a rushed environment at the end of work because everybody wants to get their beer and not close down properly and not take proper counts. You know, and it, to me, that just wasn't the right fit for what I was trying to accomplish. And so to create an after shift beer that is flavor forward, that is just so perfect for what that term means. It's refreshing. It's crisp. It has all those nuances that I love, you know, which is really unique. We used bay leaf, fresh bay leaf. We use lemon verbena, which helps accentuate the terpenes and the hops really brings out a lot of flavor nuance that a lot of people would not expect to find. Um, you know, you hear people talk about how there's like grapefruit notes and passion fruit notes and hops. Well, this, these two components by adding bay and lemon verbena really boosted the cascade hops to give it a lot more depth. And then the effervescence in it is more done in the style of champagne. So it's, you know, a smaller bubble and really, really great on the palate. So it's cleansing and fresh every time you drink it, whatever you eat it with, you can taste the food and then you can taste, you know, the beer. So to have that ability to work with athletic to create a product that's so distinct and unique is it's really um it, it's pretty amazing you know i'm i feel really lucky well i'm really excited to try it now after you <laughs> described it golly <laughs> no. so chris you know before we wrap this up I'd, I'd love to ask you a handful of uh of rapid fire questions and these don't have to be you know one word answers just a sentence or two and uh, then we can let you go. I want to be mindful of your time. It's all good. I got all the time in the world. Cool, man. All right. Well, what are you most curious about right now outside of your career as a as a chef and as a restaurant owner? Um, you know, I think right now what I'm most curious about is, you know, where where it's all going to end up. You know, what is going to, what is the restaurant industry going to look like in, in the next three years? Mm. What will the food service industry look like and how is it going to evolve and change to fit a changed world that we live in now? One that's more equal, one that's more fair, one that's more open-minded um, and more equitable across the board for all employees at hand. That's what I want to know. Mm. Time will tell. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any hobbies that that you know that are kind of on the side? Maybe you don't talk about a lot, or no one really knows about. Is there anything you like to do that you kind of keep to yourself? You know, or is it just working and biking when you can? You know, all I've ever really done is work too much for a really long time, and I think I've pushed everything out that didn't involve what I was doing, which was working. And, you know, the bike was, was mental health medicine for me. It was like, get out there and clear out my brain and relieve that stress. So I think right now, um, I need to find those things again. Do you have a proudest achievement that's outside of your career, outside of the kitchen? Um, outside of the kitchen, I think for me would have to be physically, it would have to be competing in Montezuma's revenge and finishing seven loops in 24 hours and being the first person to do that as mm. physically, but 
personally, it would have to be um, being a father. And um, that has been a pretty, pretty amazing experience. It's been a lot and it's been a lot of learning. And I think that's been a pretty powerful experience. Try to be the best parent I can be. Mm. What, what's your biggest goal not yet achieved? It could be small. Uh, well, biggest goal. It could be something you've, you've always wanted to do or something really, really out there. Man, that's tough. You know, I, I did, I was able to, you always have these outlandish ideas in your mind, right? At least everybody has these, like, what do they call them? Bucket list. Bucket list isn't really, I don't think that's a really great way to say things in life because it's, I don't think that's great. But um, a few years ago, I did one of those things that I always dreamed of doing. Um, and so I know things are possible and I know everything's there. I think it's just putting, putting your mind to it. And, you know, I've really, for some years now, I've really wanted to go to Tibet uh, um, and just, you know, revel in its awe. I think for me, that would be, be one of those things. You should, you should bike across Tibet. It's what you should do. Um, I'm, I'm actually debating whether to do the slay the dragon in Bhutan. Okay. Which would be big. That would be huge. Yeah. That's a great answer. That's a definitely worthy answer right there. Um, you know, I, Chris, researching you and, and obviously here working here at Athletic, I tell people all the time, um, you know, we sell non-alcoholic beer for a living. So that makes everything else seem a lot more doable. Um, you are also just, you know, you've got so many unique things about the way the way you cook, the way you run a kitchen, the, the, what you cook, um, the parts of animals you cook. It, it's really out of the box. And so I, I see that I see kind of how we've drawn each other to, you know, drawn ourselves to each other with, with how we're thinking outside the box. And so this whole show, this whole company is built on living without compromise. What does living without compromise mean to you? You know, I think something that was said to me a long time ago was never compete, choose your own path, right? The only competition is against yourself. And I think that, that I've, been really, really working towards that for a really long time. It's very hard to do that because, you know, you compete in a bike race or you compete in, you know, things, but it's ultimately finding what works for you, which brings you joy. And at the same time allows you to define yourself as who you are. And I think the moment, you know, like how many times a week and, you know, it's getting to be that time where the phone calls are going to start coming and the media requests are, what are the new food trends? Like, I don't care. Like, I really don't care with it. You know, like I, I want to be, you know, beating to your own drum is okay. Just beat to your own drum really well. And I think that for me has been the hardest thing and the most rewarding thing at the same time. Because there are days when I hate it. And there are days when I revel in it. I think that it may answer your question. It may not. But that right now is I have to go back to that mindset in that way of, of, of living and working and believing. Because that, I think, is, is the direction that I need to be going. Hmm. Well, Chris, man, I, I, I really appreciate your time. I know there's a million things always going on. 
Excited about the beer coming out. I can't wait. T minus so T minus how many days? We don't know yet. Thanks, Mason. Yes, sir. Have a great day. Enjoy you it. Too. All right. Bye. Cheers. Bye. That was professional chef Chris Costantino. Uh, there's a lot more to his story than that, so I definitely encourage you to look him up, check out some of his clips on YouTube, check out the athletic brewing clips that we uh, we filmed. They're really good. And if you would like to try the beer or any of our other beers, go to athleticbrewing.com. And remember, it's free shipping on two six-packs or more, and you can use our store finder to find the beer on the shelf near you. Mm-hmm.